Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. But first, yes, Vancouver schools are going to have school liaison officers back in the actual schools. And this is somewhat controversial The announcement was made on Thursday, and since that announcement, there has been plenty of reaction from the community, not all of it positive, and some concerns still remain, even though the school liaison officer program, we're told by the Vancouver School Board, is going to be revamped, it's going to have a different look, it's going to be everything we wanted it to be in the past, but why are people still concerned then? Well, let's bring in Patty Backus. She is an education advocate, a writer, former chair of the Vancouver School Board, somebody that knows this issue all so well. Patty Backus, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Happy Labor Day. Same to you. So this program was announced on Thursday. I know it is extremely political, but the school board chair, the new one, came out new. I mean, not so new but uh, new for this uh, school year starting, came out and said, yeah, we're bringing the program back. Uh, New uniforms, meaning that the uniforms don't even look like uniforms. Uh, They're very casual, down to earth. The guns, uh, you can't really see the guns, but they're there apparently. Uh, What's the problem, Patty? Well, the problem is it was a political decision. It wasn't a decision about what is best for students and particularly what is best for students who may be from marginalized groups, in particular um, Indigenous students and Black students. Uh, The decision came fairly quickly after the elections last year, which put in a new school board at the the VSB um, with uh, several candidates from the ABC party that had been endorsed by the Vancouver police. And as we all know, the police became very political in the last round of municipal and school board elections, which is kind of a new departure from past practice. Um, This decision followed a previous decision by the board prior to the ABC uh, um, board um, that had voted, I believe in, I believe it was 2021, late fall, to abolish the program that had been operating for, for many decades, I think about 50 years in various forms. And that followed a very comprehensive consultation process where different groups were interviewed, surveyed, there were meetings with feedback, there was a communications company called Argyle that was hired to review the program and report back to the board, and it had some pretty important findings that were backed up by BC's Human Rights Commissioner that students, some students who were Black or Indigenous felt disproportionately unsafe with police in the schools, uncomfortable. During that process, several parents came forward, uh, Indigenous mothers discussing how the unease they felt seeing a police car outside their child's school, the anxiety that it led to, and students themselves coming forward saying having police officers in their schools made them feel unsafe. Now, that's really important because as a school trustee, your primary job is to improve outcomes for students, to improve student achievement. And we have an achievement gap in our schools where Indigenous students typically have not been graduating and succeeding in school at the same rate as non-Indigenous students. So it's particularly important to always look very carefully at why, what some of those reasons might be. 
And when members of those uh, groups are coming forward, telling you very specifically something that is causing them not to feel safe uh, at school, that's, that's something we need to pay attention to. So this is a real step backward that really, um, to me, is shows incredible disrespect and disregard for those people who, who participated in good faith in that process, who shared some pretty hard stuff um, in public meetings that I followed closely um, and, and made a very, I think it was a unanimous vote, I believe, of the previous board to do this because they've been through that process. This new school board skipped over that, did a very uh, superficial uh, process. Uh, we knew from the, the day the votes were in uh, on election day, this was going to happen regardless of what it meant for students and particularly some of our more uh, marginalized students. And I think the word you use there is superficial, and perhaps that's what's being expressed right now by those who have come out with concerns. Now, going back to Thursday of last week, this is what the board had to say. Uh, They said that the renewed program reflects what was heard in that 2021 uh, student liaison officer engagement report, and it also reflects input from community members staff and students. It also goes on to say under the new program, police will be deployed with a more casual look. They're going to wear those uh, polo shirts instead of full uniforms. They're going to drive the unmarked police cars and will be armed with, and I try not to laugh here, but smaller pistols that can be carried more discreetly. That's not enough. You know, I think I think that acknowledges the fundamental problem that hasn't been addressed. They're they're trying to sort of uh, make some cosmetic changes, but without getting at the the real problem that is behind this decision, is the lack of acknowledgement or action on the problem of institutional racism in in the Vancouver Police Department and in policing in general in North America. This is not isolated to Vancouver. Many school districts in North America have taken the police out of schools because of the same concerns that have been expressed here locally. Um, We have a police chief in Vancouver who has failed to even acknowledge the existence of systemic racism within policing, yet we've seen so many really uh, terrible examples coming out of the VPD and, and the RCMP on a larger scale. But we've seen this, and, and to, to deny that it exists, to take any meaningful action to address and, and put a stop to this uh, culture within the policing is, is the problem. Uh, I'm not convinced it's a good idea to be teaching all students that police are safe people you can trust at all times because that, that history has not played out for groups in our society. Um, you know, people like me, I'm a white woman in my 60s. It's not so much an issue for me, um, but I listened to those other people in that meeting and I heard their experiences, their their um, what has happened to members of their families. And I thought, wow, this is a very different perspective that needs to be very carefully considered. Um, and I don't think this current board took the time to do that. I think they went in there with a political campaign promise, uh, decided it was going to go ahead regardless of what they heard. Changing into golf shirts does not change the problem. That is just a superficial uh, acknowledgement that there is a deeper problem, but they're not willing to address the fundamental problems in policing. Yeah, here's an interesting one. Uh, Deputy Police Chief Fiona Wilson said that uh, it's absolutely critical and it's one of those programs that she's so excited about uh, because of the reimagined way to address what was previously an issue. Um going on to say that school liaison officer programs uh, build relationships early 
and have a positive influence on kids. Um, and there was that consultation with these groups, but was there listing? Because we do well, know that the, the very groups that they consulted with have now come out since Thursday and say, uh, we're not happy. Well, absolutely. Um, tell that to the, the young girl who was with her grandfather in a bank in Vancouver and put in handcuffs to try and open an account, and the police couldn't even get that apology right in that case. They wouldn't even send the officers involved. Uh, tell that to people who've seen what happened with the Miles Gray case, and that wasn't maybe so much about racism, but terrible conduct by police officers, and not just one. This isn't a case of bad apples. There are some cultural issues that we need to acknowledge and address. So to, to be saying, well, we're going to humanize these folks. Well, in the first place, why aren't they perceived as human? What has been the problem in the past? And that's what needs to be addressed. Putting them in polo shirts doesn't change the cultural issues. And, and don't get me wrong, there's some excellent school liaison officers. I have worked with many. I've seen the program work very well in many cases. But the reality is it's a bigger, deeper problem, the systemic problem. It's not about specific individuals, although in some cases it is. But it's about the systemic history that we haven't seen anything to reassure uh, parents and students that, that racism has been dealt with within policing, that we are not going to continue to see Indigenous youth and Black youth disproportionately targeted or showing up statistically in policing statistics. Um, we are, don't want to see students criminalized at school. We don't need to be policing children in school. We need more counselors, support workers, people to give them meaningful help, not people walking around with smaller guns. Hi, Bruce Clankett in for Mike Smith. We've been talking with former chair of the Vancouver School Board, Patty Backus, who is also an education advocate, continues to write about such issues as this one, the school liaison officers returning to the classroom. Your calls and plenty of them already coming in, 604-280-9898. In Vancouver... We go to Stan. Stan, you're a Asian uh, Canadian. Um, that's uh, what you want us to know. Uh, your feeling about uh, the school liaison officers in the classroom? Well, good morning. Yeah, yeah. No, I am Asian Canadian. I went to school in Vancouver. Um, I benefited from the officers, and my children also benefit, as do a lot of the people that have the same background as me. So, so I very much support it. But, I, but I also wanted to mention, Teddy Backus is the former chair of the school board. Is she not the same chair that was basically disgraced for bullying staff? So I'm questioning how she could sit here and speak about inclusivity and being sort of on the side of, of the marginalized. Okay, Stan, fact- I hear your call on a completely different issue, but I'll let Patty, because you addressed it, I'll let Patty answer that one quickly. Well, that's a, that's, we could do a whole show on that, and I'd love to do that sometime about the politics involved in that. Um, part of that was my standing up for students, and, and, and that has been my record, and I think it's been a pretty public record of standing up for what is best for students, not always consistent with what senior management might uh, appreciate. But in this case, again, my focus is on the students and the, those parents who came forward to share their very legitimate concerns, and my concern that the new elected board did not go back and consider the full consultation that had happened and, and either repeat that or actually truly dig into it and understand the fundamental issues that were behind the original decision to cancel the program. Appreciate the phone call. Let's uh, move on to Burnaby and Leo. Leo, I understand you have a question for Patty. 
Good morning to you and your guests. Uh, my question, I'll just get directly to it, is that how do you address the children? Like, for example, my own granddaughters feel quite comfortable with a police officer in the uh, school. And why can't their view and opinion be respected also and have the police officer stay there? And if nothing else, try to solve the problem rather than eliminate it. Is the there a way? Children. Is there a way to do what Leo's talking about, Patty Backus? Well, I think that's work that the VPD and the Vancouver Police need to do themselves before they're really ready as an institution and an organization to be, uh, I believe, to to be welcome back into schools. In my opinion, they have not done the work to address the, the issues of institutionalized racism and policing. They haven't shown the public that they have taken meaningful action to do that. Uh, we make many decisions in a school system that are not based on what the majority needs. If it was just about the majority, we wouldn't have wheelchair ramps. We wouldn't have elevators. We wouldn't have special education. We wouldn't have policies in pra- place to protect students uh, with uh, various gender identities. Uh, it's very important for school trustees to consider each and every student in the system and what their needs are and not just pass a brush over the whole thing and think that what works for the majority is going to work for all students. It's the job of the school trustees to make sure every single student feels safe and welcome in school and find a way to make that balance. Okay, we'll leave it on that note. I appreciate all the phone calls. We did not get to all of them. But Patty Backus, uh, thanks so much for spending time on your Labor Day with us and your thoughts on that. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Out of the pool and back to school, Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. And yeah, the weather has taken a bit of a turn. A lot cooler today. It's got that kind of feel. A fall is just around the corner. And yeah, back to school. Hey, a lot of students are going to be finding a big difference this time going back to school, especially if they're in like junior high school ages, you know, like grade eight and grade nine. For many BC families with kids in grade 8 and grade 9, and this has been happening, you know, for elementary school kids for some time, letter grades are gone. Yeah, hard to believe, but those uh, letter grades are replaced with things like emerging, developing, proficient, and extending. Those are the new A, B, C, and D, I suppose. Uh, Getting a lot of uh, reaction to this from some people trying to navigate, trying to understand what it all means and what the difference is really going to do. Well, Katie Hislop in the TIE has written an in-depth article about this, and they've taken a look at some of the debate around using words like that instead of letter grades. Let's bring in Katie Katie, thanks so much for joining us on a Labor Day. Oh, thank you for having me. It's uh, an important article. Thanks for writing about this. As a uh, as a former teacher myself, and um, you know, taking a look at it, and as a father taking a look at uh, my son going through school now, going into grade eight, I was surprised to actually find those words being used. Uh, period, and then to know grade eight and grade nine is not going to include letter grades. Uh, what's the thinking behind this? Uh, so this is, I guess, to, to say, first of all, this is just for report cards. So if your teacher wants, or if your child's teacher still wants to use letter grades or percentages for tests and assignments, they can. Um, so this is specifically for report cards. But the idea is that uh, these emerging, developing, proficient, and extending um, sort of scale would be focused specifically on what your kid is learning. 
um, and how much of the information, the content, and the curriculum they're absorbing. Um, and so emerging would be, could be that uh, they're just beginning to grasp, or it could also mean um, that they're not trying hard enough. So in that case, you can get something called an IE, which is insufficient evidence. So that's how you know if, you're, if your child is just beginning to learn something or uh, if they're not trying. Um, and then developing would be, you know, they have a partial understanding of the concepts, but they still have some, some way to go. And then the third scale, uh, proficient, that's where the province wants students to be, is that they have an understanding of the concepts and the competencies uh, involved in the curriculum. That's, I guess that would be, that would be your A normally, but um, they also have this extending uh, category where to show if your child is, is actually, you know, sort of moving beyond the curriculum, this is a bit advanced in this area. Yeah, I'm so proud of my son uh, for grade seven having extending all the way through. But uh, oh, nice. he gets it from his mother's side, of course. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's interesting in taking a look at these different categories, because I would imagine it takes out some of the competition and concentrates more on the learning. Is that what you've heard? Is that kind of the thinking behind it? Uh, yeah, that, that's, that is what I have heard is one of the benefits of it, because um, one of the things that was brought up again and again in criticizing letter grades is that they can be seen as sort of like an outside motivator, that you're, you're, getting, you're aiming for the A to get the A, not because you really want to tackle this course and, and learn everything that you can. And so the idea is that this would focus specifically on what you're learning, not, you know, how well you do in tests or, um, uh, you know, your, your behavior in class or, or uh, whether you come to class on time or things like that, that this emerging, developing, proficient, and extending would be, would be basically just to boil down what do you know about what's being taught, what have you absorbed sort of thing. Now, way back in the olden days, when I was in grade 8 and 9, um, they had the honor roll, and that was based on letter grades, and letter grades were a calculation, I guess, uh, A was worth a 4.0, and B was a 3 point whatever, and then, depending upon your courses, you'd come out with a certain score uh, and end up on the honor roll or not. Uh, in my case, it was not, more often than not. Um <laughs> But I guess those days are gone. Have you heard anything about that? That's a really good question, and I regret to, to say that I did not consider that. Um, I would imagine that would have some impact, though, yeah, because the proficiency honor roll. <laughs> yeah, the proficiency, exactly. Yeah. And I guess you can quantify it if you had to. But the other thing that you did detail here is it does take uh, a turn back to what we're used to, I guess, uh, by grade 10. In grade 10 to 12, we'll still continue to use letter grades. Why is that? Um, I think the reason is because, I, well, I guess I should back up. I don't know the official reason, but I'm going to guess that it has something to do with people's fears about getting into the university. Um, because for, for getting into university, you know, there is that average that they say on their website that they're looking for from students. Um, in terms of their percentage or their letter grades. Um, and, you know, in grade 10 to grade 12, you're trying to get into more advanced courses uh, if you want to get into post-secondary, for example. Um, so you need to know sort of where you stand on that, that letter grade because that's, that's the system that they're still using. 
Um, and that universities recognize. Although one thing that was pointed out to me when covering this is that, you know, kids who have been homeschooled have been going to university for years. So they have figured that they have figured out a way to do it without letter grades. Um, a good point. Yeah. To ease parents' minds. Um, and I guess to make it easier for teachers and for students as well, that they're, they're keeping them in, in that 10 to 12 for that reason, I believe. You've talked with many different educators, educators of educators, and uh, mm-hmm. teachers in the classroom in putting this story together. What's the big feel that you get out of this? Uh, are are they happy with the, with the shift? I, I guess they must be. Yeah, the, th- the thing that I'm hearing from people who, like as you say, educators of educators, uh, they're, they seem pretty happy with it. This seems to be the way that um, the pedagogy or the the curriculum that they teach teachers is going um, in terms of how focusing on how students learn um, as opposed to focus, I guess, that, that is attainment goal of, of grades. So they seem to be pretty happy. But one thing I get sort of actually from both people who don't like it and people who do like it is that they don't think this change is really going to do a whole lot uh, in terms of impacting the way that students learn or that um, once parents, you know, get used to the scale, how they understand what their their kids are bringing home. It's interesting because at the base level of it, it's a qualitative way of looking at it when you assign a word. But still, the the words come into four categories, don't they? Uh, which they, they I mean, there's yeah. a way to score a test. Yeah, yeah, and um, you. There's been criticism that letter and percentage grades are vague, but you could also say that about this this provincial proficiency scale, this emerging, developing, and proficiency and extending. So the thing that I've heard, again, from both critics and people who support it is what's really going to matter is the teacher's personalized comments. That's where you're going to get the most information about how your kid is doing in school. It's an interesting one, Katie. It's one I'm going to be following closely as my son goes through grade eight and grade nine now and uh, get to track some of this. But uh, certainly different from me back in my day and uh, perhaps you. So we'll, oh, yeah. uh, we'll end up seeing a different style of doing this. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take yep. care. And it is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith on your Labor Day Well, Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, says Ottawa's C-18 regulations are not enough to stop it from blocking access to news. Even the tweaks don't go far enough. And we're looking at the Federal Online News Act and trying to get Meta to reverse its decision to block Canadians' access to those news stories on Facebook primarily. So far, that has not happened. Many of us are now seeing the ramifications of it. Well, News Media Canada is the voice of print and digital media, the industry right across the country. It represents hundreds of trusted titles in every province and territory. The president and CEO of News Media Canada is Paul Deegan. He joins us now. Paul, thanks for being with us. Hi, Bruce. Nice being with you and happy Labor Day to you. Happy Labor Day indeed. You know, this is really an entrenched battle. And I've got to say, uh, the big loser so far is Canada and Canadians, isn't it? It, it is. Un- unfortunately, uh, Meta has uh, decided to block news, and there's absolutely no reason for them to be doing this right now. The actual the legislation passed at the end of June, but the regulations won't be finalized until some point in December. So their move is really, from our perspective, intemperate. 
And we think they would be better off, you know, putting down their sabers, picking up their pencils, doing the hard work of going through the regulatory process. Our friends at Google are engaging constructively with Ottawa, and we would call on Meta to do the exact same thing. You know, we hum and haw about it. We complain. We run commercial ads. uh, And, uh, of course, News Media Canada is also voicing its concern about this. But I get the feeling Meta doesn't give a tinker's damn. Uh, At the end of the day, it really comes down to uh, how much of a concern is this on a platform where, like Facebook, is primarily, in Meta's view, for sharing family pictures. So we, you know, we think it's in Meta's self-interest uh, to uh, to continue to serve up news. People who uh, consume news on uh, on Facebook, they're very attractive customers. They tend to skew higher in terms of educational attainment and income. They spend a lot of time on the platform. They go there for news. They keep coming back for more. And Meta's really in the business of harvesting data. They're following you around as you're, you know, looking at all of this various stuff. And then they're selling highly targeted ads against it. And we believe that it's in their economic interest, it's in their self-interest to keep doing this. If you look already, the federal government has suspended its uh, advertising with uh, Meta, so meaning Facebook and Instagram. And last year, it spent about $11.5 million with them. Premier Legault in Quebec City uh, has done the same thing. And Premier Eby in B.C. has done the same as well. So we would hope that other premiers, other mayors as well, Mayor Plant uh, in Montreal has suspended advertising with Meta. We hope that Mayor Sim in Vancouver would do that as well and really send a strong signal to the company. Ultimately, what's going to happen here is if it costs them more in terms of lost advertising dollars versus what they'd have to pay under the Online News Act and Last week, the Fed said it would cost them, you know, a little over $60 million. We're probably inching close to that already. So it would just take a few more premiers and mayors and the large corporates. So we'd call on the large corporations in British Columbia to make a strong principled stance and stand up for journalism, stand up for democratic values. We've seen leading Quebec companies like Quebecor, like Kojiko doing this. And we would hope that the other telcos, the banks, and the other large uh, retailers and folks like that would do the same thing and say to our friends in California, you know, you cannot just block news in, in Canada, especially as wildfires rage across the country. It's just socially irresponsible to do that. So we would hope that everyone will send Meta a strong signal. The unions have been very active on this on, on Labor Day. Our, our friends at Unifor have uh, sent a strong signal. So we would hope that others would do the same. You know, it's interesting because uh, I hear the, the message and the push for that, and let's hope that uh, that Facebook actually hears it through Meta. But uh, there are some content marketing experts that have been warning for years. Uh, Joe Polizzi comes to mind. Uh, they've always said that social media is rented space, and if you really want to own your content, you develop other channels like your own website and your mailing lists. Is this not a wake-up call for media companies to do so? It is, but but certainly, uh, you know, Meta, meaning both Facebook and Instagram, are part of the puzzle. Like it, it's all about reaching the audience and reaching people where they are. And there's a lot of Canadians get their news uh, from Meta platforms. About a third of Canadians actually get their news that way. And but you know, if, if Meta actually follows through on this, I think it will be incumbent on all publishers of news to really develop other channels. So whether it's you know driving people to their sites themselves or developing apps or whatever it is, 
but it, it is definitely a wake-up call to everyone that you cannot rely on just one channel. What's your confidence level right now? We're not winning this uh, this as Canadian media, but what's your confidence level that things for Meta will change? It, it, it's really hard to say. I mean, I, I think if they're acting in good faith, they will come around and uh, and engage with the government. If they still have concerns, the government actually last week provided a level of clarity as to sort of what, you know, what their economic liability would be. And, you know, I think that number is sort of a fair and reasonable number. It's in line with what we've seen in Australia. And if Meta wants to, you know, act in good faith, I think the government is extending an olive branch to them. They should just sit down with them and work this out. And we're happy to work with them. And I'm confident our friends at Google would be prepared to work with them as well. So I think if we all work at this together, we can get the regulations right so that everyone can thrive and survive alongside each other. Meta's been a good partner to news businesses over the years, and we'd hope to continue to have a good partnership with them for many years to come. We just need a willing partner at their end. Well, Paul, certainly a unified approach uh, right now on the Canadian side. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much. It was great being with you. Bruce Blanket with you on this Labor Day and on the Mike Smith Show. Also, the last day of the Pacific National Exhibition. And we're going to bring in Laura Balance, my old friend from Tawasson from my youth. Laura, it's so great to be with you. You know, on Labor Day, I often think, um, you know, is that kind of a letdown or kind of a end of a long period of uh, working really hard? It must be emotional for you year after year. Yeah, it really is. And thanks for having me, Bruce. It's great to be able to talk to you. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's always um, it's always a bit nostalgic for me because you're saying goodbye to people that you see once a year. So this is truly is a fair family. And uh, so many of the people move on to other events or fairs uh, around North America. And uh, so we regroup at the beginning of August and uh, get ready to welcome British Columbia to the PE, and we certainly did that this year. So uh, it's always a bit of a nostalgia and also a bit of excitement, um, you know, because t- today we, um, we'll close the fair tonight at 11. Uh, a week from now, we'll give away the, the PE prize home. And then the work begins on the next fair. And so everything that we've learned uh, from this year, uh, as well as new opportunities, uh, the work begins to try and craft um, the next great PE fair. But you know, it was our 113th year this year, and, and so there's so many British Columbians that gift us with their time um, during the PE, and we continue to be British Columbia's uh, end of summer tradition. And I know the actual official counts always come in some days later, but uh, what is the sense? Are we up this year for this year's fair or down or about the same? Well, we're going to be significantly up from last year. Uh, last year w- truly was a COVID recovery year, and we continue, you know, to to right the ship. I think events, you know, not only here in BC but across the country, um, following the COVID pandemic, and um, so we're going to have a strong year certainly um, over last year. It's hard to say. I mean, we'll certainly be selling tickets uh, into this evening, and and we'll count people right up until uh, we close the doors and. You know, with the PE, unlike a lot of events, we do traditionally about 30% of our overall attendance in the last three days of the fair. So the Labor Day weekend makes us or breaks us, and um, it really comes down to weather. Um, so 
we'll see. Today's looking pretty good, um, and hopefully people come out and and continue with their end of summer tradition, which is, for many people, uh, Labor Day at the fair. Yeah, it sure is, and I know a lot of people uh, try to get in at the very last moment on a Labor Day. Laura, this year, people returning, you mentioned that uh, it's a recovery year. It still is a recovery year, um, but when they came back to the fair, those that had been away had not seen it in its various uh, incarnations over the pandemic. They may have noticed a few things different this year. Tell me about those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, the PE, um, we are, you know, I always say our core demographic is two to ninety-two, and everybody in between. So we we have a unique opportunity and challenge here in in ensuring that we have great programming for for literally every member of the family. And I think. You know, from our concert series, um, from, you know, iconic programs like Agriculture and the Superdog. Um, those are important to, to people in British Columbians. Agriculture obviously remains at our heart. And, you know, we are, when, when the PE started in 1910, uh, we had a campground and a train stop because it was considered too far out of the city of Vancouver to come, you know, for many people just for a day. And so, um, the city has grown up around us, and I think that we have a unique opportunity and also an obligation to continue to educate urban British Columbia about, um, you know, rural British Columbia and, and uh, you know, the, the messages in and around shop local and local agriculture and the important role it plays in this province. So that remains an important part. And then I think, you know, people always want to know what's new. So whether it was our Monet exhibit um, we, you know, we had uh, the high dive show, which has been here kind of on and off over the years and is always very, very popular. Uh, we had a brand new nightly show, Remix Inferno, um, that uh, has been very, very popular. We expanded our cultural showcase every day during the fair with multiple shows a day on, on our Tim Horton stage that was very popular. I was very proud, um, uh, you know, the p and I know we all were to have a significantly expanded programming within our Canoe Cultures exhibit, which is, for those who don't know, Canoe Cultures is an Indigenous-led, not-for-profit society dedicated to arts and culture, um, and specifically around um, the, the role that the canoe has played in Indigenous culture here in British Columbia. And uh, we started that relationship last year. It was a huge success. success. This year, we expanded it to include a, a stage today for any of your listeners that are interested in coming out. We have some amazing programming throughout the day, including a 3 p.m. performance by Alex Wells, who is the world champion um, hoop dancer who's going to be here uh, performing. So oh. that's just a small sampling of, of the hundreds of shows, exhibits and attractions at this year's fair. We're talking with Laura Balance at the PE. Uh, Laura, one thing that I did notice that was different this year, uh, you couldn't tour the house when it came right. to the actual grounds. What was that about? Well, it's actually our second year of doing this. It started during COVID, and um, the PE Prize Home being on site and being something that um, people could tour was a big part of our programming. But the reality of building a house on the PE site and then having to move it to its um, uh, final location um, was just becoming incredibly expensive and was very limiting to us. Um, and so uh, we moved away from that during COVID um, and it was, it, it was very popular. People um, continue 
to want to see homes in the lower mainland. Um, and so this allows us to do that. This year's home is in Langley. We've been hosting tours in Langley um, of that home for the last couple of months and throughout the fair. It's actually in a in a unusual twist. Uh, you know, I've worked for the PE for 31 years. It's so near and dear to my heart. And the new Peony Prize home is actually kitty corner to my new home. So not only do you get a Peony Prize home, you get me as your neighbor. So well, that's you know, a good it's funny <laughs> because it's only six blocks away from me. So that's a great. Oh, you've chosen a great it's place. It's a great neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, neighbor. Laura Balancel, yeah, exactly. always a pleasure. All the best to you on the very last day of the Peony. And thank you. And and Bruce, uh, one thing that I think your li- listeners would be interested to know, it's also the finale night of our uh, iconic PE amphitheater. So we right. will be saying goodbye to the amphitheater tonight after 59 years with a uh, blue rodeo on this stage as the finale performance. And uh, then we will make way for the new amphitheater. Um, uh, you know, in the coming months, they'll, they'll begin demolition of this one in preparation for the brand new amphitheater, which will open in 2026. And Blue Rodeo, what a great choice at that. Laura, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Bruce. Have a great day. Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. And, uh, you know, as we close out at the Labor Day long weekend and the summer break, we're also saying goodbye to a person that represented the vibe of summer 365 days a year, and that's Jimmy Buffett, who passed away on Friday at the age of 76. And for the past few days, many people have been paying tribute to his iconic image and the influence he had on uh, not only music, but pop culture, which I would suggest is even larger than his, uh, than his hits. Let's bring in Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator at thatericalper.com. Eric, there's so much you could say about Jimmy Buffett, but you know, when I look at him as a performer, and if you talk about charts, it's not about the charts. He was about that vibe, and he really defined something that was so much bigger than himself, didn't he? Yeah, and you know, I'm not one for specific dates of the year. I just think it's all kind of coincidence and irony is just left up to you and I to talk about. But I find it incredibly um, bizarre and ironic that Jimmy Buffett passes away just at the tail end of the summer. Yeah. You know, um, but certainly you're absolutely right. You know, this was a guy that had, you know, he had 13, 14 billboard hits throughout his lifetime, but he never relied on them. In fact, he is officially a billionaire and made his money not just on the the songs and the concerts, which he's had years and years and years of complete sellout tours without having a radio hit. Um, but that lifestyle that he helped create, the trop rock, um, the the lifestyle, the use of escapism in his songs, the beach life, the sailing, the pursuit of happiness. Well, let's go put that into restaurants and bars and condos. Um, and that's exactly what he did, selling this lifestyle to embrace a more relaxed and tropical way of life. And wow, was it ever successful. It sure was. And here's the thing about Jimmy Buffett. I remember seeing him in concert in Vancouver last time he was here. Um, and it was a great concert. He brought up uh, Sarah McLaughlin on stage. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, that's typical of the type of thing he would do. But he would also be in concert in bare feet 
and laid back and wearing a very typical Jimmy Buffett uh, kind of tropical, almost Hawaiian uh, Hawaiian shirt. But at the same time, he was a shrewd business operator, wasn't he? Oh, you had to you you have to be anyway, even just to maintain a couple of years in the music industry or anything entertainment, um, because it's just filled with competition. There's songs and there's tours happening all over the place. But the one thing that Jimmy Buffett did really, really well is he didn't deny his own audience. And sometimes artists do that. You know, George Michael didn't appear in the videos because he wanted to calm down his audience. Um, Bruce. Springsteen goes a little bit um, in the 1990s and sheds some of his image and becomes a guy that wears suits and bolo ties back then when it was fashionable. Jimmy Buffett looked like his audience of parrot heads. And, you know, the beach-themed attire, the devotion in his concerts to him, the love that his audience had for his music. He never wanted to do anything different. It's not that he might have, you know, said, oh, I think I'm just going to do a metal album like Pat Boone did in the 80s. He just stuck to his road, knowing that it was the best way to not only reach people, but to make the money that he wanted to make. And that's that's completely fair when you're in entertainment. It's to try to get that kind of lifestyle that you want to live. And his audience were was like him they were both advocates for emotional for environmental causes and conservation of the ocean and coastal regions these were people who can afford that kind of lifestyle and could afford to travel and they were very well aware that if you looked at Jimmy's feet and his shoes chances are you were probably wearing sandals at that show too Yeah, well, exactly. And that was part of Jimmy Buffett and is his legacy. And I think that's going to continue on. I'm often reminded, and we talk a lot about the Jimmy Buffett story of going down to uh, Key West and falling in love with the Florida Keys at a time when he had absolutely no money. But he held that image kind of like the common person just enjoying life and not really caring about the rules. Yeah, and there's also the the Canadian side of him, too, because his grandfather, James Buffett, was a captain from Newfoundland, and his father was a marine engineer and sailor. So when you think about those songs about Margaritaville and the ocean and waves... Son of a a sailor man. Yeah, exactly. Those were stories that were a little bit embellished for better times, but those were the stories that came from. So I think that he should really be deemed Canadian content. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because he even sang about PEI, um, but passed away before he ever got a chance to see PEI. Yeah, it's one of those things where when when an artist starts canceling tours and you're past the age of 70, you have to kind of wonder what else might be going on. And as a publicist in music, you never want to reveal too much, you know, you for the just for the um just for the safety and the security and the and, and everything for the family. But I had a feeling that something might have been going on, and it turned out that um, that it was a form of cancer that was kind of unbeatable for for the last remaining months of his life. But the, the family came out with a statement that said yeah. that Jimmy Buffett, when he passed, was surrounded by friends, family, music, and dogs. 
And if that's not a better way to go, I can't think of one. That is Jimmy Buffett. Absolutely. And yeah, he did hide that from his audience. I guess uh, the battle was four years long in various forms, uh, ultimately passing away from skin cancer or a form of skin cancer. But, uh, you know, he he certainly went out with a, with a certain sort of vibe on that. Uh, his legacy, do you think there is one for other musicians? Oh, absolutely. Right now, he's got four songs on the Spotify U.S. Top 50 chart, and he's still number one on the iTunes chart and Amazon chart. So it's not just older people or his generation that are buying those CDs on Amazon and the like. People are on Spotify right now listening to his music, probably enjoying the last long weekend of the summer, and I bet you a lot of them are under the age of 25. So we're going to be listening to Jimmy Buffett as long as we have hot weather and the sun and summer. Great way to put it. Eric Helper, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.